If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That'll be our scripture reading this morning. Again, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We're so glad for you to be here this morning uh, to worship our Lord and Savior here with us. And if you're visiting, we again want you to know that you're our honored guests. And we'd love the opportunity for you to stick around uh, as we're going to have a potluck meal together as well. Uh, we're having a gospel meeting this week. And so uh, that means uh, I get to sit back and hear some great lessons. And I'm uh, extremely happy about that to uh, get to hear these, uh, these, these hall men uh, speak to us. And if you weren't with, here with us uh, last evening, uh, Brother Isaac brought a great lesson from Philippians chapter 2 on the love of Christ. And I really appreciated how he went through uh, that chapter and broke down uh, that, those passages for us. And so I know that uh, we're in for another great lesson this morning. Uh, from Brother Isaac. And so I uh, just want to, again, if you weren't with us last night, just to give you a little bit of background on him. Uh, he was born and raised in Berea, Kentucky, but he now lives in Lancaster, and he served as the full-time minister at the Maple Avenue Church of Christ for the last six years. Uh, he has a Bible degree from Freed Hardeman University, and he and his wife Olivia have been married for six years, and they have a one-year-old son, Elias. And, and so we're glad for them uh, to be here this morning. Uh, his uh, topic this morning is going to be on gospel preaching. And so I'll please, uh, uh, if you're at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the scriptures say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God in revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Brother Isaac. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. It was good to be here with you last night. And the, the great thing about speaking twice in a row is that it's not a tough act to follow the second time. So nobody expects too much or anything more. So that's always nice. If you weren't here last night, I introduced myself as Jack Hall's grandson. And that's how you can address me. That's how most people know me. And that's okay. So this, this morning, though, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look in a little bit of Romans chapter 1, but more so we're actually going to end up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to try to express another specific need that the world has. And the need this morning that we're talking about is gospel preaching. And so we're going to define what we mean when we say gospel preaching, and then we're going to talk about the impact that that can have on the world. And so we'll start with this definition. And of course, there are two words here, so we have to define each word. So let's start with the first of the two, which is gospel. So if we're talking about gospel preaching, then the gospel part of this has to come first. So what is the gospel? There's a lot of different ways you can go with this. You can go back to the original word, which a lot of you, I'm sure, have heard before, which is euangelion, which means good news. So it means glad tidings. And the question, the only question then is, well, what good news are we talking about? What is that good news? What's the good news about God? It's the good news about Christ. And, and we can get a little more specific than that. In the passage that was read for us just a minute ago, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul defines not exactly the gospel itself, but what the gospel means. And he says that it is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God. How powerful is God? 
What is the limit of his power? God created the entirety of the universe. He spoke it into existence. In a week's time, he did more than any human or all of humanity has ever done. God is all-powerful. And so when it says it is the power of God, that should be an impressive statement for us. Because that means that this powerful, all-powerful God has taken all of that power and he's put it into one small little message in the gospel. So the gospel is all of God's power wrapped up into just a few phrases that can be described when we're talking about the gospel. It's the story of his love for humanity. And what's more powerful than that? The all-powerful God of the universe puts his power into just this one story that we know so well now. So it says that it's the power of God, but also says that it's the power of God for salvation. So the, the power of God wrapped up in the gospel also has the ability to save. It would be one thing if there were just power in and of the story. But there's not just power there, but there's power for us to be saved. Not because we're so great, but because of God's love for us. So there's power there, and there's power for salvation. For anyone that will obey, whether they be Jew, whether they be Gentile in the text here. But Paul, in a different place, like we mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn over there, he defines the gospel a little bit farther. And so we'll go with him there and we'll examine that passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, Paul's going to expound a little bit on this idea of the gospel. In verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Okay, great. That's what we're trying to identify. He says, Which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul identifies what we've been discussing already this morning, that there is the gospel, And there is a way that you can transfer the gospel and the power that it has from yourself to someone else. He says, I've done that to you by preaching. So he says it twice in these two verses that it it is the message that is preached. Well, okay, we'll define preaching in just a minute too. But that's the way that he lays it out here as being transferred from one person to another. It has to be preached. Also in this text... It asks, or it will ask the question, what does the gospel do when it, when it is heard by a believer? And Paul goes through several different things here. He says that it is that in which you stand. It's the very foundation of who you are as a believer. And it's that which saves you, which we saw back in Romans chapter 1 as well. But it only does so if you hold fast to that word that again was preached. So... That's the power it has for the believer. But Paul now is going to go on to famously define what he calls the gospel in verses 3 and 4. So read along with me there. It says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. So often, whenever we summarize the gospel. And if I ask you this morning, well, what is the gospel? Then a lot of you would probably respond with this answer, at least in part. We would say it's the death 
It's the burial and it's the resurrection of Jesus. And that is true. That has to be true. Paul says it's true here. We understand it to be true. So that is factual. We can agree to that. But I think if we just use those three terms, if we say the death, the burial, and the resurrection, then we're missing out on a little bit more of what the gospel really is. And sure, there's a lot of other things that could be brought into the idea of the gospel. But I mean in this text, there is more that Paul says. Paul says the death, the burial, and the resurrection. But if we just take that to be the gospel, then that that causes some problems. Because I remember a couple other people in the Bible, and you do too, that died, that were buried, and in fact were resurrected from the dead. Which is not common, but it does happen. So if you remember Lazarus, for instance, in the New Testament, he died, he was buried, and he was raised again. So that, that can't be all there is to the gospel. Same thing happens back in the Old Testament, kind of a strange circumstance where someone has died and they're thrown into the tomb of Elisha. And they contact the bones of Elisha, and and they're resurrected from the dead too. So was that the gospel message? Well, no. So what else is there in the text that we overlook when we just say the death, the burial, and the resurrection? A couple things. One, at the end of verse 3, it says that Christ died, just like Lazarus died, just like anyone else dies. But he died for our sins. Did Lazarus die for your sins? No. Not, it, not even if it were possible for him to do so. But he didn't die for your sins. No one else has ever died, and even if they were resurrected, died for our sins. So there's a difference right there. But the second difference is right after that in verse 3. It says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he'll use that phrase again after saying that he rose again in verse 4 on the third day according to the Scriptures. So when Christ died, he died for our sin. When Christ died and was buried and rose again, he did so according to the Scripture. Well, what Scriptures are we talking about here? We're talking about the Old Testament that had prophesied in advance that all these things were going to take place. And so when we look at this simple way of defining the gospel, if we leave out these two elements that Christ didn't just die, but he died for our sins... And if we ignore that Christ died and was buried and was resurrected, but he did so according to the Old Testament scripture, then we're missing out on a little bit there. So that's our reminder that the gospel entails a little bit more than just the death and the burial and the resurrection. So in our definition, we have to keep that in mind. So is that the whole of the gospel? If I say, well, Jesus died for our sins and was buried and resurrected according to scripture, is that the whole of the gospel? Not the whole of it, but it's a pretty good summary. And we understand that there's more that goes into it. There is the, the aspect that we talked about last night, all the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to make, including leaving heaven for the first time and, and giving up all the luxury that, that he had there personally. So he gives up things there. He forfeits all of that in his birth, in his life, the rest of his life, besides just the crucifixion. You could add the ascension into this. And we could say all of that has to do with the gospel. And maybe in its broadest sense, if you want to define the gospel, you can just say that it's everything that Christ did because he loved us. Now, if that's the definition of the gospel... That's not necessarily a hard message to preach. And if the summary of the gospel is just that Jesus died for our sins, 
and was buried and was resurrected according to the Scripture, well, anybody can teach that. And everybody should teach that. So certainly we can define the gospel pretty simply. But then there's the other side of this, and we won't spend nearly as long on, on defining preaching. But what is preaching? Well, for most people, preaching is what's happening right now. You are hearing someone preach, and that's how we usually mean it. And there's nothing wrong with that concept. But at the same time, the original idea of preaching is not necessarily a paid occupation. Instead, it just means to proclaim the message of Christ. So if you go back again and you look at the original language, which you don't have to do to understand what preaching means, but you'll find the word keruso. And all it means is to preach in a general sense, but more to, to proclaim or to tell something. Or, or sometimes it's translated herald, which is probably not a word that we use often either. But one way that it can be translated that I kind of like, that I find helpful, is that you can translate the word for preach into publish openly. Now what would it mean, instead of saying that we preach something, if we said that I'm a, an open publisher of something? Well, that means that in every aspect of my life, people should be able to see this message on my person in what I am doing. So, practically speaking, if I'm wearing a t-shirt, what does it have on it? And that might not be literal. If I have a social media account, what are you going to find on it? If I'm talking to somebody and, and I'm supposed to be publishing this openly, then what am I going to be talking about? If I'm going to keep this anything but a secret, then I'm going to teach it to other people. and People are going to hear it and they're going to see it. Now also practically for the church, if we're inside this building and, and we're comfortable with the people that are in here and we've got the, the windows down and we've got the doors closed, maybe the doors are locked and that's the only preaching that ever happens, then by our definition we just gave of publishing openly, is that really preaching? It's part of preaching, but if preaching only ever happens in this room, doesn't that sound a little bit like what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, around verse 14, when he talks about the, the basket that you set over a light so that no one else gets the benefit of the light? Is it possible that the church building itself can become a basket that we set over the light of, of preaching to the point that it's not published openly, but it's only published in private? Gospel preaching. It's the, the two-part method that we're talking about here. Gospel preaching. And we're trying to say that the world needs more of this. But at the same time, we have to recognize, well, if the world needs more of this, then it can't just happen in this room. Because believe it or not, the world's not in this room. The world is outside of this room. This is just a tiny little slice of it. So there's more preaching that has to happen, and it has to happen outside of just these walls. So how can this message of the gospel and of preaching the gospel, how can that change anything? How can that change the world as a whole? How can that change the church? Well, first, it can change our priorities. So it's easy enough for us to look at our life and say, well, Christ is our priority. Okay? But if the good news of Jesus is that he was willing to leave the splendor and the comfort of heaven to come here, and to preach for a while, but more importantly, to die for our sins. And even though we were somewhat thankless as he did so, if that's the gospel message that we're talking about, then what is most important in life? Is what is most important 
the, the things that we engage in most often in life. If you take a chart, and if you were to do this literally, it's kind of painful to go back and look at. But if you were to take a chart of every hour that you spend during a week, and what it is that you spend that time on, what percentage comes out as being about Christ and about the gospel? Because it's not as much as we would like, and it's probably not as much as we think. You spend a few hours at church in a building, and hopefully you spend a little time reading outside of just these walls. Maybe you talk to a co-worker about Christ. That's wonderful. But most of our time is not spent on Christ. And so when we are asking this, this question of, well, how is this message going to change the world? In a lot of ways, if it doesn't change our priorities first, it won't change the world. If it doesn't make a change here, it's not going to make a change anywhere else either. But it should change our priorities. It should change to the kingdom of God coming first. But it doesn't always work out that way. Where do we go instead of to church? What do we do instead of paying attention to Christ? And why is that? Why isn't the gospel message the most urgent priority that we have? Sometimes whenever I am stressed by something or there's a certain situation that I find difficult, I find it helpful to ask a couple questions. One, what will this matter 100 years from now? Now, I am 27 years old, and whenever I hit 127, I can ask that question again, right? What will it matter 100 years from now? Well, it won't. Most of the things of this world they won't be of any importance. But instead, what will it matter eternally speaking? Well, it turns out that most of what's on television, most of what we see on social media, those things won't matter. The sports we watch, the, the books we read, even the hobbies we have, the, the time that we spend on the things of this world, those won't matter 100 years from now. And they certainly won't matter in eternity. Priorities can change and should change in response to the gospel message. Now, evangelism should change too. And when we say evangelism, and we go back to, to what the gospel means and go back to the original language, that same word that is translated as gospel is the same word or is the root of the word that we get evangelism from. All it means is to spread that good news that we've heard. So if Jesus has died so that the world might be forgiven, should evangelism change? It should. Should our view of the lost change? Now, I don't know if this happens to you, so I'll make this personal to me. And I'll say that, unfortunately, a lot of times when I look at the world, and I look at the things that happen in the world, I see people who are engaged in sin. And you see that too. And so if you look at the news and you see what's happening in politics, or if you see what's happening in international affairs, you say, well, those people, a lot of them are just caught up in sin. Or maybe on a more individual level, you say, well, okay, I see this person that decided that they were going to drink heavily, then they were going to operate a vehicle, and then they were going to injure somebody. Of course, they didn't mean to, but it didn't really matter. And you say, well, they're engaged in sinful behavior, and there are bad results. And you look at all this, and you say, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of irritated. I'm kind of annoyed by all these sinners. Well, here's the question. If Jesus came and died for me, I guess maybe I have some right to say that I'm irritated by other sinners. But if Jesus came and died for everyone on this earth, then how should that change what I or how I view other people? 
Other people should not just be sinners that their behavior irritates me. Instead, they should be lost souls that need this message that we're talking about. Instead, we should view them as sheep that are without a shepherd. We should view them as people who are drowning in a sea of sin that need help. And instead, all I can do is see them and and say, boy, their behavior just makes me mad. Well, that can change. That should change in response to the gospel message. One more thing we can say is that a change should happen in the way that we view the church. If Jesus came and died for the body, for the church, then the way I look at the church has to change. It can't be viewed as everything else on earth. So let me give you an example of this. Do you ever have fear for the sake of the nation in which you live? You ever think that things might not be going the best direction? Have you ever worried that maybe this nation won't last for all time? Okay, let's apply that to the church. Are you afraid for the future of the church? Do you think that this this church that we're a part of may not last for all time? If Christ came and died for the church... And he promised in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Then how do I feel about the church? Now, I understand if we're not putting in the work, then the church here in Columbia, it might not exist in 100 years. If I'm not willing to do the work, okay, there's reason to worry. But if I'm putting in the work, I trust that Christ has promised that the church as a whole will prevail. Then why am I so fearful about society? And why am I so afraid of of culture? And what is the problem that I have looking into the future and saying, well, I just don't know if my kids are going to be able to make it. Well, if the church, and if they're part of the church, then there shouldn't be a problem there at all. But again, it all depends on whether or not we recognize the gospel message and what that gospel message teaches for the church. And, And it changes more than this. And there's more things we could talk about. We don't have time to discuss them all. But it should change the way that we fellowship. We'll fellowship just a little bit in in, or after class. But at the same time, we can fellowship outside of the church as well and should be. It should be going from house to house. It can change that. It can change how much time we spend together. It can change the way that we give. It can change our attitude. If Christ was willing to come and die for us, well, and certainly we should be willing to lay down just a little bit for him. And, and there's a lot of ways that we could apply this. But if the world needs gospel preaching to improve the state of everything, if the world can only be made better through gospel preaching, then the church needs it too. And the church needs it first. And the church has to accept that message. And they have to be willing to change in response to that message so that they can change the world afterwards. So how does this message change the world as a whole? If the church can change its priorities, if they can focus on evangelism instead of just how they see sinners and and the anger that it causes, and if they can change their view of how the church can face the world in the future, then what can change in the world? Well, in the world, if we take the gospel message and we preach that message to the world, then the simple answer is it can change everything. I'm afraid when I say that, that that sounds, sounds quaint or it sounds like a, just a nice idea. But if Paul calls the gospel the power of God for salvation, then what can it not change? Somehow, as Christians, of all people, it seems like we have a, a tendency to hear things and be skeptical 
When in reality, God has already made the promise that this can change everything if we're willing to step up and if we're willing to be part of this. So the first thing that that the gospel message can change is that it can save the world. Not in the way that a superhero might save the world, but it can save the world, spiritually speaking. The gospel can and will change the eternal fate of the souls that live about us. Is that a powerful change? Is that an important change? Every soul on this planet can be saved through the gospel message. That's a change worth making. If that happened, of course, then everything in this broken world would be changed for the better. But one soul at a time. The second thing we can say, aside from saving, is that it can heal the world. It can make the world a better place. We're talking about some of the, the events that go on in the world. We were eating breakfast in the hotel this morning and saw some news about the war in Ukraine. And you look at that and you say, well, on an individual basis, how much can I do about that? On a purely individual basis, how much can Isaac do about that war? Not a whole lot. Not personally a whole lot. Of course, the last couple of years, we've been dealing with a a pandemic, and we can ask the same question, what could I do? What can I do on an individual level to, to change everything? Well, honestly, not a whole lot there either. Or you can take other things. You can say, well, what about government corruption? On an individual basis, is there a whole lot I can do? Well, probably not. What about terminal diseases? Is there a whole lot that I can change? There's not. But what can God do? Again, we ask this question and we somehow, I think, I fear that we end up thinking, well, because I can't change it, then nothing can change it. Well, that's not true. If anybody can change it, it's the one who created it all. And God has done just that. So what kind of preaching can make the world change in these ways? To save the world, to heal the world. Let me give you a basic idea. One, this preaching has to be the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. That phrase comes from Acts chapter 20, verse 27, as Paul speaks to the the elders of the church. The whole counsel means that we don't ignore any part of it, but it also means that we don't harp on the same things over and over again. And so it's going to take everything. It can't just be about love, even though that was the message of the sermon last night. It can't just be about baptism. It can't just be about attending church. It can't just be about the New Testament, but it has to include the Old. If we're going to preach the gospel message that is able to change people, it has to be the whole of that message. Second thing we can say is that it has to be a brutally honest gospel. It has to be level with people. And people have to know exactly what this gospel means. Because if we water down the gospel, then we water down the results of that gospel as well. If you get a watered down gospel and that's what you preach, you will get watered down converts. Is that even possible? Do you have someone that's half of a disciple? I don't think it really works like that. But we understand that if we water down this message, it does not have the power of God in it anymore. If we only choose parts of this message, then we're removing that power of God for salvation that Paul told us that this had. The other thing we can say is that it has to be passionate. And it has to be sensitive. 
And it has to be loving, and it has to be tender, and it has to be personal. Because brutally honest, as important as that is, can drive people away. And there's a balance to be struck here. And we see that in our Savior. We see Him speaking to the humblest of people in the humblest of ways. And we see Him also speaking to some of the most arrogant people of His day, in the Pharisees and the chief priests. And we see Him speaking, not arrogantly, but forcefully. And the pattern is there for us. We preach the gospel as our Savior preached the gospel to anyone who's willing to listen. Can I make a real difference here? Can you make a real difference here? And remember that when we say gospel preaching, there's nothing in the word preaching that defines it as a man standing behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning in a suit speaking to an audience. That's not preaching. Preaching is publishing the message openly. Can I make a difference if I openly publish this message to everyone else? Can that make a change? Well, again, not individually, not personally. It's not that Isaac has some great power in and of himself that that he's going to change the world. But if I believe that this is the power of God for salvation, the change can happen. The change will happen. So can I change the world? Well, the world needs gospel preaching, and that happens on an individual basis, which means that, yes, I can change the world, but how is it going to happen? The pattern in the New Testament sometimes is misleading to us, I think, at least depending on what passage you're looking at. Sometimes when we hear gospel preaching, we envision what happened on the day of Pentecost, and that was gospel preaching, certainly, And how many were saved on that day? How many thousands of people responded all at once? Does that happen every time we preach? No, it doesn't. But what else is gospel preaching? Whenever you and someone else that happened to be reading the book of Isaiah are in a chariot together. And you teach them what Isaiah had to say about Christ. And you save one soul. That too is gospel preaching. And it can happen and should happen one soul at a time. We looked at the Great Commission last night just a little bit. And of course, the Great Commission has a a teaching that takes place in it. The Great Commission teaches that you are to go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded to you. Well, what's one of the things that Jesus commanded? To go out and to teach and to make disciples. So what happens? It's a cycle. It's a pattern. You go out. You teach. And that person now has immediately understood that their objective is to teach someone else. And then they're going to teach someone else that now knows that they have to teach the person after that. And that will continue on. I think sometimes in, in the history of the church that people don't necessarily know what impact they have. Some people have baptized thousands into Christ. But... If you go to specific individuals and you say, well, who, who baptized Marshall Keeble as an example? Uh, who baptized N.B. Hardiman as an example? Who baptized Gus Nichols? Uh, who baptized Jack Hall? And what, what impact do you think they had on the church? Do you think that they would save thousands eventually through the, the preaching they had done to one person? We never know what our convert that we help make to Christianity is going to do for the whole of the church. But it starts with one person at a time. That's the power of the gospel. It pays interest and it it has compound interest. But it has to happen starting just one person at a time.
A transformation of the world, of course, starts on a more individual basis. And that's what we want to explain as we close this morning. A transformation of the world starts with a transformation of an individual. It has to happen that way. And so this morning, you as an individual have an opportunity. You have a chance to change the whole of the world. Not by yourself and not by your own merit, but because you have in your possession the power of God for salvation. And that message can and that message will change the world if we are first transformed by that message ourselves. And if our church as a whole is transformed by that message, then the world can be changed for the better. Our text, or part of our text for this morning, from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it uses a phrase. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Okay, well that's good. But I'm going to suggest that that phrase is a little difficult in our modern understanding of English. And sometimes Paul uses phrases that we wouldn't necessarily say it that way if we were speaking to somebody today. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if I were saying the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil to somebody today, what one word could I use in place of the love of money? I'd use the word greed. Because that's what it means. Greed is the root of all kinds of evil, certainly. And that's what Paul intends here. In this case, in Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, there's a different phrase that we can use instead of saying, I'm not ashamed of. In fact, I'll suggest that the the connotation is a little bit different. For example, I've I've got a one-year-old son who just started walking a few weeks ago. And if I told you that I am not ashamed of my son... Okay, well, that's good. I'm glad you're not ashamed of your son. That would kind of be a bad way of putting that. What else could I say instead that makes a little more sense? What if I say I am proud of my son? And what if I say instead of just I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I am proud of the gospel? Would that change the way that we look at this just a little bit? With gospel preaching... It starts with a change in us, and the the beginning of that change is to say, I am proud of the gospel message, knowing that it is the power of God for salvation. This morning, you've heard just a little bit of that gospel message. You've heard just a little bit of that power for salvation. If you've heard enough this morning, if you've heard enough in the past, certainly, this is your opportunity to respond. One individual at a time. This is your opportunity to be saved, to start making a difference in the world. Now, if you are saved, then certainly that's wonderful as well. But if your mindset is not one that says, I am proud of the gospel and I'm ready to share the gospel, then this is the time to change that as well. This morning, if there's anything the church here can do for you, if there's any need that you have, this is your chance. This is your opportunity to do better than you have before. This is your opportunity to grow closer to God. If there's anything we can do to assist you in that, We ask that you come forward now as we stand and as we sing.